From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Tracy McSherry from Phase Space joins us to talk about innovation in the garage, education, and motion capture technology. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000, here on Grok Science. Welcome back to the program. Well, joining us today is our very special guest, a serial inventor and engineer, Tracy McSherry, a inventor based in California, and he's going to tell us about some of his thoughts on innovation and his own inventions. Mr. McSherry, thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me, Frank. Well, it looks like you have a very interesting history of dabbling in uh, different um, innovations. How did you become interested and, you know, what are some of your inspirations along the way? Well, I think the first one is uh, my dad used to bring home broken equipment from work. He was an electronics technician. And when they had some gadget that was broken beyond repair, uh, instead of just throwing away right away, he'd he'd let me uh, bring it home and let me break it even further. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to take apart a lot of things and uh, try to put them back together and such. And, and that, uh, um, that that created an itch that I've never been able to finish scratching. I presume you've been, you know, tinkering throughout your lifetime. You know, one of the, the sentiments in the last few years is that America's innovative spirit is, is dying down, whether it's because there's less federal funds or people are just accustomed to a... You know, comfortable lifestyle. What do you see? Do you see there's still a lot of tinkers out there? Oh, a- absolutely. It's it's just that uh, a lot of them are buried in high frequency trading and other non-productive aspects uh, because the, the the lure of the money is just a little too great. The other thing that we did, which is good for the world economy but bad for the U.S. economy, is we decided not to uh, incentivize. When when you look at some of the best American inventors. Uh, in history, you find out that, well, they're actually from Russia, from China, from India, and they came to the United States uh, because we had more opportunity here. But the reality is the United States is a melting pot. By uh, attracting all these brilliant people uh, from all over the world to the U.S., uh, giving them opportunities that they might not have had because of their race, their gender, uh, their political views, and welcoming them here, uh, we were able to get the breast and the brightest from all over the world. Uh, previous political uh, uh, groups decided, well, we don't want those people here. And so the interesting thing is now those people have been uh, welcomed uh, back in their own country in many cases, and they're starting companies there. And for the world economy, that's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's good that there's, no, uh, there's some really strong innovation happening in China and India and stuff. It's just a little frustrating because we're, we're, we were used to being the ones that uh, attracted all those best and brightest. You, you touch upon a couple of interesting issues here, um, uh, particularly on, say, the, the funding of projects. I mean, building things can get very expensive at times, and sometimes, you know, the best places are universities or, 
or research labs, but for people who want to do it in their garage, you know, what are some of the ways to get around that? Well, it turns out the tools are better than ever. Um, you know, there's a, there's a nice quote from Isaac Newton saying that if I should see further than others, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, anybody now can uh, go out and buy for $400 an Android phone that's one of the most powerful portable computers ever built. Uh, this is much uh, stronger and uh, more robust than anything available for a million dollars just 10 years ago. And you can download the operating uh, tools, the uh, API SDK development tools free and create your own software application, teach yourself how to do things. So I would argue it's actually stronger than ever rather than harder than ever. Okay, and then h how about 3D printing? Do you think that's making hardware costs go down as well? Oh, absolutely. It, it allows you to do 10 different prototypes in 10 days. Um, HP's working on making them a bit faster, but right now it takes on the order of, you know, 2 to 10 hours to print something particularly interesting. Uh, it gets tired of printing your own name in uh, 3D font after a while, and if you try to make, like, impossible gears or uh, all these uh, wonderful gadgets and stuff, there's uh, Thingverse and a few other websites that can give you a head start and uh, kind of get you started again. But you can actually build your own 3D printer for less than $500. I'm here in Japan, and uh, I heard recently there's a cafe that just opened in, in Tokyo as a 3D printing cafe. And, you know, you can order drinks and coffee, but then there's also these machines that you can print stuff with. Oh, that's brilliant, because that means you're going to be sitting there buying <laughs> coffee for six hours. They're going to make a killing. And that's a brilliant idea. Or if, if they're really smart, they give the coffee away free but charge for the bathroom. The quote you mentioned from Isaac Newton, I heard some anecdote that it wasn't actually because of his foresight. It was actually an attempt to belittle one of his competitors. Oh, I, I believe so. I mean, truth be told, I, Isaac Newton was a nut. Uh, <laughs> he but, died a virgin. <laughs> but yeah, that just tells you he's crazy. <laughs> The, the, the reality is, is that most of the brilliant people are considered nuts. Now, the problem is, is that how do you tell the difference between a nut and a brilliant person? And, and my quote is, well, the brilliant person actually makes money at it. The trademark of people who are creators mm -hmm. is that they are dissatisfied with the way things are. Uh, what I like to say is there's four types of people. There's makers, there's takers, there's fakers, and there's breakers. And it turns out that there, the world couldn't take too many makers because then we'd be uh, in constant confusion. There is a wonderful ability to get into schools these days to explore things with uh, computers that are under $500, with 3D printers that are available now, you just told me, in coffee shops. Uh, it's, it's easier to be an inventor or mad scientist than ever before. Uh, but it still takes work, and a lot of people just stare at the screen and go, okay, waiting for inspiration, uh, let me watch YouTube for a while. That's not the way to do it. You just have to sit down, find a problem, and then, uh, uh, as, as you were uh, telling me when we first met, why don't you repeat your line? You, you told it so well about that uh, research uh, versus uh, library work. You mean advice I got, like, spend two hours in the library can save you two months in the lab bench? <laughs> Well, actually, it's the other way around, but uh, usually. I, I hear it is sometimes two, two months in the lab can save you at least an hour or two in the library. <laughs> and, and that's the point that one of my favorite inventions was this nutating gear drive. 
that uh, I invented after uh, actually being in Tokyo and, and seeing how some of these harmonic drives work. And being a mechanical engineer and physicist, I said, well, you know, I can think of another way to do that. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought this would work. This would absolutely be a great uh, way to make a robotic device with uh, zero backlash and all that. I'm surprised that nobody thought of it before. And so I worked out some details, did some drawing, and then finally after I'd spent a couple weeks on it, getting all excited, I did some uh, search on uh, Google and uh, found out that somebody had done it before in Italy and they called it the Space Gear. And then I did some more research and found out somebody had done it 10 years before them. And then I finally found a patent that was from about 1850 that had the exact same gear. The key isn't that I got beaten by somebody else. The key was there were reasons that it didn't work because they didn't have the precision machining, the capability of doing mass production, and, and all the other tools that we have today. So even though the concept was around 150 plus years ago, a, a useful implementation still isn't really available today. And that's, that's a lot of what I do is to look and say, let's not worry about who's first, let's worry about getting it working. Uh, you alluded to some uh, aspects of education earlier. Um, I understand you've, you've been trying to work out different paradigms to, to motivate kids. Uh, you know, what, what are some of your thoughts to get the this next generation to be excited about technology or in general you know, ways of improving our, our lives? Well, I think a lot of it is to recognize that the big textbook companies and the teachers' unions and the bureaucrats in the states and federal government uh, really are more interested in their jobs than they are teaching the next generation as, as good and as affordably as possible. So we've kind of gotten bogged down by the machinery instead of taking advantage of all these tools that technology's brought us. My kids have had the uh, wonderful teachers uh, in their life, and, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the good ones. But every time I talk to a different teacher, uh, principal and stuff, I ask, what percentage of teachers do they have that they think are uh, kind of dead wood? And they usually tell me about 10, 20 percent. Now, that's not bad from a you know, statistics standpoint. It's you know, kind of the 80-20 rule. But the problem is that 20 percent of the teachers, let's say there's uh, 100 teachers in your uh, school district, with 20 bad teachers and 30 kids in each, that's 600 kids that aren't getting the education that they're paying for, that, that they deserve. And so one of the key things is to improve the um, uh, processing and teaching process that everybody seems to agree on but right now at least in the United States we're, we're kind of gridlocked between like I said the, the various bureaucratic and uh, union groups so that's that's one of the things the, the next is simply adopting technology again um, I, I don't want to seem like a Android fanboy but I am we can actually I believe put the entire K through C educational system you know, kindergarten through four-year college on an Android-type device and do it free. And that makes education so much more affordable when instead of carrying around 25 pounds of textbooks that are obsolete by the time uh, the school gets them, we can have dynamic uh, games, interactive lessons, uh, puzzles, challenges that are suited to the individual child, suited to their interest, suited to their grade level, to their reading level. And so now, instead of the teacher being the uh, slave driver, they become the coach and the mentor that allows them to just simply 
use assessment tools that are as sophisticated as the Netflix prize that decides what movies you'll like based on previous movies that you've mm -hmm. seen. Now we use that same sophisticated type filtering mechanism to say, well, based on what you're doing well in, we're going to give you examples, but we're going to slowly be outside your comfort zone. But because you're good at these things, we think you'll be good at these other things. And so we're going to teach you algebra, but we're going to do it in basketball scores and say, well, if LeBron James scored uh, three three-pointers and two field goals and uh, five uh, foul shots, what was his score? Well, that kid who likes basketball doesn't think of that as algebra. They just think of that as, hey, I know that one. And as soon as they have that I-can-do-this attitude, mm -hmm. they're willing to go further and take more risks. What's going to stop these kids from just looking at YouTube all day rather than really engaging? Well, again, these tools can be monitored. The, they can say, you haven't earned your uh, 500 points from doing mm -hmm. homework. Mm -hmm. You're not authorized you know, until you get this done. And, and that, again, I think is beneficial for the parent and the teacher to not be the bad guy, to let the computer be the bad guy. What about your thoughts on higher education? Uh, you know, where do you think are the gaps and how can technology help to overcome it? Well, Andrew Ng at Stanford uh, with Coursera, uh, uh, EDX, and, and all these wonderful tools are really going to challenge the traditional educational system in that if you can get from the uh, rock stars of the professors the best business education, the best chemistry education, the best physics education for free online, it's going to be hard to justify uh, paying $45,000 a year to take it from uh, less uh, stellar professors at some brick-and-mortar school. Okay, well, it's been interesting hearing your thoughts on education. I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the the innovations you've actually brought to market. I understand you developed phase space and now it's being used in a couple of different industries. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, sure. Uh, what you see, uh, if, you, if you go to our website, you'll see uh, some of the more traditional things we do with games, uh, with computer animation, uh, robotics, and that sort of thing. And it's fun. We, we work with people like uh, Honda, Disney, the United States Army, Navy, Air Force, Ubisoft, uh, Bethesda, all these different game companies, uh, Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, Cambridge, Cardiff, uh, UC San Diego, UC River, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara. So we get to work with really the gems of, of all the universities in the world and stuff. So, so that is great for me as a mad scientist inventor because I get to work with all these brilliant people uh, at universities and research labs all over the world, including over a dozen in Japan. And the main purpose of phase space is in motion capture, is that right? We um, do motion capture, we do computer vision, we do tracking, we do telerobotics and input devices. So it's a little bit uh, uh, of a smorgasbord of different technologies that allow you to input what you're doing into the computer. Uh, we have a system that's uh, suspiciously similar to a dozen other companies that allow you to smile and wink and uh, interact with your face as the input device for expressions in a computer. Uh, our main bread and butter is a system that has some blinking red uh, or infrared LEDs that we track 960 times a second uh, for 64 markers. So we're giving about 60,000 data points per second, which allows us uh, for another uh, project company I'm working on. Uh, we're making our own animated movie with about one-tenth the number of people that uh, traditionally are used to make a movie. You know, looking at your, your website, it, it seems that a lot of these systems are also integrated with some sort of uh, 
headgear, uh, w would this integrate with Google Glasses, or would that be a different type of system? Well, it depends. Um, within arm's reach, you're used to having uh, you know people who can touch, type, uh, just feel that little bump on the uh, on the K key, and they know instantly, uh, or J key, I guess, uh, where their fingers are, and they can type away. Uh, their hand-eye coordination is is really pretty acute within arm's reach. Uh, the human visual system is also very adept at uh, stereo processing within arm's reach. But it turns out that once you go past that, your dominant eye usually takes over or your peripheral vision depending on the task. In a small area within arm's reach, uh, the type of precision that you get with our tracking is absolutely critical. We have dozens of systems uh, worldwide where they're using it because uh, people almost never get nauseous wearing our uh, wearing that same head tracker. I've had several people who make head-mounted displays go, wow, I, I've never seen our display look this good. Because really what they're perceiving is not the quality of the display, it's the quality of the entire experience. And because of the high frame rate and the sub-millimeter resolution that we get, it makes the tracking experience easier, uh, much, much easier. But if you go outside your reach, now you actually want different types of technologies that we and uh, again a dozen other people are working on that use things like uh, simultaneous localization and mapping or optical flow uh, to give position. So it really it's a matter of position, distance, and scale. Okay, and and then I understand one of the recent movies was made using your your device. Is that correct? Well, uh, several of the smaller movies, um, Spider-Man, we were used for the previsualization. Uh, Smurfs 2, a bunch of other uh, movies that are coming out, a bunch of video games and stuff. Actually, the bulk of our uh, work is, as I said before, really the universities and the research labs where they like the fact that they don't need an army of people. Uh, uh -huh. Whereas in uh, Hollywood, uh, it's, it's somewhat of a union shop there too. They don't like the fact that we can do with two or three people what they usually would use 10 or 20 people to do. I understand you're also working on a couple of other projects and one of them includes energy uh, you know w what are your uh, I ideas on generating safe uh, renewable and inexpensive energy a lot of people have been working on wind turbines and I went to uh, Washington and met with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commissioner John Wellinghoff and he uh, convinced me that there's too many people working on uh, wind energy and had I considered water and I looked into it and realized that most of the design advantages that I'd been working on would actually translate very well into a, uh, a, a saltwater or river environment. The interesting thing about water is that uh, the, the ocean currents are flowing 24 hours a day. The rivers are flowing 24 hours a day and the tides are flowing about 20 hours a day. So if you take a megawatt of infrastructure uh, for wind, solar, or uh, water energy, it turns out that water produces three times as much uh, power per day as the other two. And that's, that's a huge advantage. Uh, the second advantage is we can actually make it out of cheaper materials than uh, the others tend to use. Using the, the materials which are available just in that vicinity, is that right? Yeah. So what we're looking at is uh, we're working with the United States Army Corps of Engineers to develop uh, high-strength concrete products. And uh, using some advances that we co-developed, we've been able, under a, what's called a cooperative research and development agreement, we're able to make corrosion-resistant steel products that can be joined with concrete. So we can actually make big structures out of uh, concrete pieces that are bolted together. And that allows us to make things uh, for you know, pennies a pound 
whereas steel and carbon uh, fiber and uh, other composite materials are much, much more expensive. Is this being tested in, uh, in the oceans around the U.S.? Uh, not yet. We're, we're just in the mad scientist invention uh, iteration uh, phase where we're designing this on paper, uh, building some prototypes with a small CNC machine. I, I've actually used 3D printers to kind of visualize some of these pieces. And we hope uh, actually in the next couple of months to start doing the testing. We're uh, playing around with the different concrete recipes and such. Uh, what I jokingly tell people, I forgot, you know, my, my life is a joke, so I figure I should learn a bunch of good ones. If you want to build something dirt cheap, you have to build it out of dirt. And for most purposes, high-performance concrete is still just mostly dirt. Tracy, thanks so much for your stories. I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, are there last words you'd like to add about uh, your work or uh, yourself? Well, my goal is, like I said, to work on some uh, good energy projects. Uh, I get to travel the world and meet fun people. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to do some of this uh, educational tools. Uh, I want to do a shout-out to a friend of mine uh, doing a project called My Dream. If you look up their Kickstarter, My Dream uh, is a educational uh, software program for kids and young adults that, uh, again, I think helps that creativity, uh, helps spark that creativity that we've talked about at the beginning. Uh, Tracy, thank you so much for joining us here today. Okay, well, thanks for having me, Frank. And we were just talking to Mr. Tracy McSherry from Facebase. To check out his technology, you can go to his website at facebase.com. Stay right here. We'll be back with the Grokotron 5000. Welcome back to the program. Well, uh, Tracy has kindly agreed to join us on this week's Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today we're going to play the game Maker or Breaker, <laughs> or, or, or Faker or Taker. And, um, you know, I'm going to give you five subjects, and you're going to tell me which of these uh, they fall into, uh, or if there's a, you know, fifth or sixth category you can think of. Uh, You're certainly welcome to. (laughs) Sounds good. Uh, Maker or breaker, uh, subject number one, Google chief engineer, Ray Kurzweil. One of the most brilliant uh, prodigies that we've had. Never met him. Uh, Would love to. Uh, I think he's getting a little uh, burnt out, though, lately. He seems to be somewhat depressed. Uh, Oh, okay. So you think that singularity could be just a dream, then? Oh, yeah. yeah. Singularity is... uh, both uh, something that will happen, but it's not going to be what everybody expects. And it's, mm-hmm. it's more like finding out that your toast isn't burned. You know, it's uh, th- there's a wonderful application of artificial intelligence if I've ever heard one. So is, is he a maker, breaker, or what is he now? <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. I would actually say that he's in a transition stage. Okay. <laughs> I, I would say, obviously, he was a maker. Now he's turning into a breaker. I, I can't remember what he's done lately, although I hope he's happy with the Google split. Let's just say he's a maker that's uh, in temporary retirement. Subject number two, um, all the way from the beginning of America, uh, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, he, he was one of the makers. He, he, <laughs> he, he's one of the people I most admire. Um, you know, Some people think outside the box. Uh, they had to p- build a box and try to get him in it. 
Um, but no, he, he, he was absolutely one of the, the first and foremost makers of the United States of America. Subject number three, current president of the United States, uh, President Obama, maker, breaker, taker, or faker? I would say he's a maker. He, he, he made history. Uh, he picked up one of the worst, you know, uh, sometimes you, you hate getting into the seat uh, of somebody who rented the car before you because there's all this stuff. Uh, all this, you know, uh, let's pick a word for it in the seat uh, that was there before you, and you inherited that. And uh, I think I think he's done a uh, good job. I, I, I wish he could have done a great job, but I think he's going to done a good job with the hand that he was dealt and the Congress that refuses to deal at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I, I think too many people put the blame on him by himself not recognizing that uh, Benjamin Franklin and the other framers of the Constitution uh, intentionally crippled the office of the presidency uh, to be, as uh, Roosevelt, uh, Teddy Roosevelt called, the bully pulpit, more than the actual person who can uh, make the laws and uh, take over and such. You know, th- we didn't want a king. And so, um, again, our, our politics right now in the United States are so uh, polarized that uh, he doesn't get enough credit for the things that he's doing and he gets too much blame. Uh, but the, the bottom line is uh, Congress framed his position as somebody who has the visibility but not really the authority to do more than make uh, very, very powerful suggestions. Subject number four, uh, Star Wars character, Master Jedi Yoda. Well, he's obviously a faker. You know he doesn't exist. <laughs> Good choice. All right, and number five, world-renowned physicist Stephen Hawking. Now you got into religion. You know, <laughs> I, they always say, you know, we should talk about sex. Uh, you know, <laughs> religion is just going to get me in trouble. Uh, no, actually, see, I, I'm, I, um, I'm an applied physicist, not a real one. See, the whole point is uh, Hawking and most of his very, very brilliant people uh, get too lost in the mathematics and, and not spending enough time actually building things and and understanding that you can't shave with Occam's razor. Uh, <laughs> so the, the reality is, I, uh, this is way out in the religious nutcase uh, areas. I'm actually a believer in the many little bangs versus the big bang. Mm. And so a lot of what the current theorists uh, are, are demonstrating is uh, based on proving that the people are right, not about what's actually going on. And, and so it's, it's kind of like once you've learned the Bohr model, it's hard to unlearn the Bohr model of the atom to understand the fuzzy probability statistical uh, locations that really exist. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, quantum mechanics. If, if, if you realize there's a difference between saying that we can only measure quanta, but the world is quantified. Right. Uh, and, and that sort of subtlety... Um, I had the wonderful experience of talking to a Nobel laureate uh, at Berkeley uh, right, right around the time I graduated. And I asked him a question, and he looked at me and he said, I can't answer that. I said, oh, okay. He says, no, you don't understand. I know the answer. You don't know the math. I can't tell you the answer. You don't have the language to even appreciate what's going on. And mm-hmm. that was one of my motivations for going back and getting a master's in applied physics from Davis. Right. Um, well, now I know the answer, and that just means I have more questions than ever before. The bottom line is uh, Hawking is a brilliant guy. Again, I would love to meet him. I personally think he's wrong, 
but you know it's hard to sit there and argue about the short child radius and and causality and whether or not you can leak things out of a black hole. So he might be a little bit of a faker then. Uh, well, I, I I personally think so, but come on, the guy's brighter than I am, so it, it'd be hard for me to argue with him. <laughs> it's been a really fascinating discussion. Uh, Tracy, thank you so much again for joining us on the Rockotron 5000. Thank you, Frank. It's been fun. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. You can check us out on the web at www.groks.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Music